quick announcement before we get started. Phones are off and away all throughout the school day, including lunch and recess. That's part of the school day. I know nobody in here would ever not put their phone away. <laughs> What's up, everyone? This is Myra Flynn, your usual host, except not today because I'm going on vacation. It's official. I get to have a vacation like a person, and I'm going to get off the computer for a little while. And I'm so lucky because I have uh, some amazing colleagues who are going to take my place. One of those people is somebody you might recognize their name in our credits. I always say James Stewart does so many things on the back end of making the show come to life. Indeed, he does. Hi, James. Can you tell us about some of those things? Yeah, sure. So for Homegoings, I end up doing a lot of what you said in at the back end, uh, dealing with the podcast feeds and building up the website and making sure that we are getting the best quality sound that we can with Myra talking to all of these wonderful individuals. Yeah, so basically without you, nobody can hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> Without James, you can't hear the show. So we're really thankful to you, James. And and also there's this other person, which I'm really excited. I've kind of like poached you uh, a few times for your homegoings, but this is Adia Golston. Hi, Adia. Hi. And can you just... Tell the people what you do at Vermont Public. So if you listen to Vermont Public closely, you might have heard of my name. I am the producer for All Things Consider, and I am the person that kind of like stacks the newscasts and picks, you know, what you're listening to on the daily. So I'm so excited. Um, I have these trustworthy Awesome colleagues and people, uh, you'll all be in great hands listening to this episode. And this is what we call, I think we call it passing the mic at our job, something like that, passing the mic. So here, here's the mic. Take it, James. Take it. <laughs> I, I will absolutely take it. But before you go on vacation, Myra, I wonder if you could do a little musical experiment with us. Oh, I mean, they don't call me Myra musical experiment Flynn for nothing, James. Let's go. Do they call you that? I it's a really unconventional name. That's a really long name. <laughs> uh, so here's here's the deal. I'm going to play for you a piece of music, and I'd love for you to just use your imagination. While you listen, I want you to think about who's playing this music. I want you to think about what they're wearing. Where are they? I want you to think about what they look like. Then I also want you to think about who wrote this music. What did they look like? What is their social economic status? Where where are they? How are they dressed? And also, even more importantly, what's the color of their skin? That's a lot. I'll try. Let's see. Okay. I'll try. I've got to think about this this person's everything. All right, let's go, James. I'm ready. I'm ready. Adia, are you ready? Yes. All right. Oh, good. Adia's doing it too. Okay, cool. Cool. Experiment indeed, James. <laughs> okay. So I'm curious, Myra, Adia, what did you hear? What did you imagine? Yeah. So, okay. If I'm thinking about this person. So fun fact, I've actually been 
classically trained in piano since I was age four. It's been a minute. I kind of switched to R&B later in life. And if you don't use it, you lose it. But I know what these composers of classical music tended to be about. I think about somebody who is uh, at least like aristocratic enough in some way to be invited into spaces where this kind of music was invited into at the time. I definitely pictured kind of like Marie Antoinette kind of like um, time period, just like a big ballroom full of just like these like aristocrats, just like with these big powder wigs and all their big dresses with all these ruffles and jewels and stuff. For some reason, I think of this as a hymn only because I don't know that I've like heard a lot of female classical composers out there. So I've definitely associated classical music always with men. And when it comes to this person's skin color, like, definitely white. The person I imagine conducting this or writing this is definitely, like, white. <laughs> I mean, I'd play classical piece after classical piece and never came across a person of color. Yeah, I, a white male, that's kind of, like, what I picture. Yeah, those are my assumptions. I feel em embarrassed assuming anything about anyone, but you asked for it. <laughs> See, I've done this uh, experiment now with a few people, and including uh, music educators, and uh, everybody has that same response. So I'm curious about us diving into today about what presuppositions do we bring to classical music and wondering why is it that we uh, associate a specific race to it? What is the history that has brought that to us? Well, that sounds like the kind of delicious nuance I love on Homegoings, James. <laughs> I mean, if I had been able to see or hear myself in the world of classical music, maybe I would have stuck with it a little bit longer. I played the cello for like two years or so when I was um, in an immediate school. And then I kind of grew up just like um, in choirs and stuff like that. And it's kind of like sad. It was just always an assumption. And I've never questioned that the people writing these pieces were like anything other than white. I think, like you said, Myra, like maybe if I knew that there were more black people or that like we did have a space in there, maybe I wouldn't feel other in that space, basically. Yeah, I'm so guilty of not even searching for my people in what are considered, you know, the fundamentals. And so I just, I think that this is just really cool that you're, that you're diving into this, James. I'm, 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 excited, excited to be proven wrong. From Vermont Public, this is Homegoings. Today on the show, some of our assumptions around classical music, who gets to make it. That was my experience where it was just like, yeah, only white people write it, only white people and Asian people play it. And who is it really for? Playing the violin not only changed my life, but it statistically saved it. This is Homegoings. Welcome home. So does anybody listen to classical music? Yes. My dad likes to listen to classical music during breakfast, so like on the weekends we usually listen to classical music. I normally don't think very highly of classical music, mostly because I think of it as like a rich boy, sorta. 
genre. Don't get me wrong, I kind of hate classical music. I have some part of me feels like it's not being made anymore and it's just like some white guy in the 19th century in a wig and a long pirate coat just writing, <laughs> just playing the piano. Welcome to Homegoings Season 1, Episode 10. I'm James Stewart, filling in for Myra Flynn, and these are the voices of students from Tuttle Middle School in South Burlington, Vermont. I took a trip to their classroom, and we did the same musical experiment together that Myra and Adia did earlier. As you can hear, they share a lot of the same assumptions about classical music. We'll hear more of their voices and reflections throughout this episode. The piece I played them is a violin concerto by French composer of the 18th century Joseph Boulogne Chevalier de Saint George. Chevalier was a multi talented biracial virtuoso who was even nicknamed the Black Mozart. But you might not know Chevalier or his music, because the majority of it was erased as slavery was reinstated in the French Empire after the Revolution. And about that nickname? It's an unfortunate title. Chevalier was older than Mozart, far more famous in Paris and all of France at the time, and had more prestigious appointments in the musical world. One historian wrote that it might be more accurate to call Mozart the White Chevalier. I, and I think I think the closer you get to it, then it becomes confusing. Like it's, you know, the anecdotal information that you're giving about this gentleman say, well, why? how come I never knew about this person? So the succinct answer to your question is there is racism and erasure within classical music because there has always been racism and erasure within our global communities. That's the voice of composer and activist Daniel Bernard Romain, or as we'll be calling him in this episode, DBR. And I'm a Black Haitian American composer, and by composing, I mean the forming and framing of ideas. DBR is the real deal. He served as artist in residence at the Flynn Center in Burlington, Vermont. He teaches at Arizona State University and works with symphonies around the world. I sat down with him to ask why, in his opinion, does there seem to be so much whitewashing, so much erasure of diverse voices within the world of classical music. Ooh, how much, how many days do you have? <laughs> <laughs> It's like anything. When you get too close to it, you can't see it. You have to pan out and see things sometimes from a much broader, much more general view. So let's do that. Let's zoom out a bit, because the erasure of Chevalier's music isn't the only story. There's the sad words of Clara Schumann, who gave up on composing because she was a woman. Scott Joplin had entire operas repossessed to cover debts. The music of Florence Price spent decades unplayed and forgotten in an attic. Julius Eastman's music was thrown out on a New York City street when he was evicted from his apartment. And that is just the tip of an iceberg. There are so many more names of women and people of color from music history that so few of us know about. Madalena Casiolana, Margaret Bonds, William Grant Still, Isabella Leonarda, George Walker. Dig into their music and you'll find beautiful, wonderful pieces. Why are these names so much less familiar to us even today? If I had to give an answer, I would say that racism and erasure and exclusionary practices continue in classical music because I think it's very, very hard to undo any tradition. No matter how distasteful, unjust, unfair. Traditions are linchpins. They have deep roots. 
I have a home here in Tempe, Arizona. That's where I'm talking to you from. I recently removed all of the grass in the front and backyard and replaced it with rock. Rock is much more environment. You know, this is the desert and I didn't want to keep watering a lawn, but I've replaced it with rock. And as you can imagine, grass and weeds continue to grow. So I have every morning before I do my walk, I'm removing grass and weeds from, from what was a, a green grassy lawn. Let me tell you, my friend, a single piece of grass or weed, or weed can have deep roots. And it may look frail, it may look unassuming, innocuous even, non-threatening. Let me tell you, so I reached the other day for what I thought was just a banal, and it had little thorns in it. Actually, it really hurt me. You know, I hope, I hope you can understand the analogy I'm trying to make here, the metaphor I'm trying to make here. A single, what seems like a single kind of blade of grass might have really deep roots that are absolutely impossible to remove by hand. Requires help and understanding and a technique even. And when I remove one, another one pops up. You know, I can't get to a place of equity, equity in that rock bed, right? in my own front lawn. That's the perfect analogy here where, you know, you may have, if, if, the, if the rock represents the best of us, if the rock represents change and the idea of equity and literally a foundation upon which you can lay other ideas and, and it's a better, uh, more environmentally friendly, and it really it's about sustainability, that rock. It is indigenous, that rock. It was here before I was. It'll be here when you and I are gone, that rock. Well, guess what? That rock continues to be infiltrated by the horrors of somebody putting grass here. Those roots run deep. And it's, I feel outnumbered. Outnumbered. Let's talk about numbers and real representation in the classical music world today. I was surprised to learn that there are over 2,000 professional or semi-professional orchestras in the U.S., employing close to 45,000 people. That's a lot, right? Except only a little more than 2% of these musicians are black. And that percentage, those are the people actively playing this music for a living. For those who are studying it and hoping to get into the industry, the trend is sadly similar. There are just under 100,000 students in music schools and colleges around the country. Of that number, just over 8% of students and only 5% of the faculty are black. I can see why Myra and Adia don't see themselves in the world of classical music. I feel that everyone is equal. I do. But I am not the general manager at the Met. I do see the goodness in all people, but I am not the executive director at the Boston Symphony or the artistic director of the New York Philharmonic. I personally believe that you can never have enough diversity. You can never have enough representation. In all likelihood, you and I won't live long enough to see the kind of diversity that at least I envision. I know that in my own education, I never attended a university that had a single black composer. I had to seek them out at my own expense, by the way. Most composers will not study with me and they won't study with me because there isn't agreement 
on how important that is. And I don't have the, I don't have the unilateral power to make that kind of change happen. I know I'm hearing myself talk right now. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But, but yeah, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, every composer sees me, they don't hear me. I mean, all these things being true, I asked DBR how he got into classical music in the first place. Why would anyone pursue a world they haven't historically been welcomed to be in? Yeah, it was, I think, um, in large part environmental, in large part cultural. Uh, I was in Margate, Florida every in 1975. Every elementary school had a music program, an orchestral program, a band program. I started playing violin when I was five years old in school. It was public school. The violin was free. I had a music lesson once a week. And culturally, my parents, for them, music education was a small part of the total education. So culturally. So even beyond race, it was part, to be a good Haitian student, you played an instrument. I quite literally grew up with it. That was Broward County 1975. Broward County 2023, as we've offered less arts programs, it will be very difficult for you to find an orchestra program in, ele- in any elementary school in Broward County. Less in the middle schools and less in the high schools. It will be very difficult, if not impossible, for a young black boy in Broward County, in Margate, Florida, to pick up the violin. That, that boy, that person will be utterly alone. Because again, it wasn't just me playing the violin, it was a hundred of us and their parents, but I wasn't the only one. There was a culture, there were other kids doing it. I had examples all around me. And I always say, but statistically speaking, playing the violin not only changed my life, but it statistically saved it, without a doubt, without a doubt. You know, young men of color around the world, if you think about what is in their hands, for me, it was a violin. And it is not too much of a stretch to say, if it's not a pen, if it's not a laptop or a mouse, it's a gun. It's a gun. It's a gun. It's a gun. Like, it feels like it's like the world and like everything around me is just like moving like quickly. I feel like just like the slow beat is like helps me just like slow down and like calm myself down a little bit. Because like everything around me feels like it's going at a slow pace and then like my brain feels like it's going like super fast. And so like I need something to like catch up with that so I can actually like cool myself down and focus on stuff. I like listening to music in a different language. More specifically like the music from my country, I guess like, like I, f- I have a feeling like if I could listen to it more then I it would be faster to learn the language because I don't know the language. <laughs> of my country that I come from. I play trumpet and all the guitars and the piano and the ukulele. And I really like to play like classical or jazz or folk. I play the saxophone. My favorite like type of music to play is probably just like in like 2010's like movie theme song entrance like Pratch of the Caribbean or something like that. Well, my dad is from West Africa and we have a lot of drumming there, so I sometimes use those drums. Hello, Adia here. I'm back. 
Like the students you just heard, I also grew up with music, including classical music mostly through my school choirs and my short stink play in the cello. And I also grew up listening to the R&B music. And for me, these were two separate genres that existed in two separate spaces within my world. The way they were presented, consumed, and seen were different. But despite their differences in culture, so many classical elements found its way into Black art. Like this one. This is the Infernal Dance from Stravinsky's Firebird. And though it's a classical piece, it has had zero trouble crossing the racial divide. In fact, it features one of the most famous sounds in hip-hop. You'll hear it in Michael Jackson's Dangerous, in W.A. Straight Outta Compton, and Planet Rock by African Bambata in the Soul Sonic Force. It's called an orchestra hit. Or many may know it as the hip-hop cliché. That's something that happens in classical music that's being used in hip-hop in a completely different way, right? And it happens so much now, it's complete, it's unrecognizable as what it was originally, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's kind of the beauty of black culture is that black culture absorbs what's around it, deals with it, and then produces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the things that you're that we produce will not be a replica of what we heard. Either it's going to be completely brand new or it's going to be some sort of alteration that makes it hip to us, right? This is Matthew Evan Taylor. I sat down to talk with him in his small but cozy office at Middlebury College, where he is currently the assistant professor of music. He is also on the composition faculty at the Longy School of Music of Bard College. He teaches music theory, improvisation, and composition. To put it simply, Matthew is deeply immersed in the classical world. And he's Black. And being Black has not stopped him from approaching his field with grit, creativity, and total freedom. His compositions have been performed to audiences across the United States and Europe. And his music even sounds free, as improvisation is one of his signature styles of composition. Matthew says his journey into classical music hasn't exactly been linear. As the Beatles say, a long and winding road. Mainly because where Matthew grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, an orchestral program simply did not exist. Growing up, I I had no attachment to classical music in particular. Didn't even know there was such a thing as composers other than the dead people that had written the Fifth Symphony or, you know, whatever. Um, There wasn't really any engagement with it. Like, I would hear Mozart or Beethoven in some of my favorite, like, Warner Brothers cartoons. That started to change when people thought that exposure to classical music meant that um, you would be smarter, right? Which was really just kind of a, a racist trope that got propagated. Just basically, you know, classical music is civilizing like all things that are generated by by white people is civilizing for the rest of the world. So there were all these points in that time period where classical just was always kind of like trying to impose that it was bigger and better. Yeah. So that was my experience where it was just like, 
yeah, only white people write it. Only white people and Asian people play it. I asked Matthew about change. And how does it come about in this insular world? And as an assistant professor, if he had any thoughts on how we teach or introduce classical music to potential students and audiences alike, how do we keep folks engaged with a genre that's revered only by its past? The problem with the model of classical music is that we're worshiping the music of people that are long dead and, and we have no, they're not there to explain their music to us. Other people are explaining their music to us, whereas myself or Jesse Montgomery or um, Missy Mazzoli or um, Carlos Simon, people like that are alive and well and can tell you exactly what's going on, you know, with their music. I think it's... It, this is more with ballet, but which I think maybe kind of has the same issue as classical music. I think of Solange. Solange, a Grammy Award winning artist, and some may know her as Beyonce's sister, composed a new score for the New York City ballet called Playtime. It was a pretty radical moment as she became only the second Black woman to score a piece for the New York City Ballet. I remember, like, because she's Solange, mm -hmm. but, like, people came out to see her. Yeah. And I just remember it being, like, this really big thing within the Black community. Yeah. They tokenize us. They use us as a means of capturing an audience. They need to hold on to the people they have while growing the audience. But if the people they're holding on to have different tastes than the audience that they're trying to, which is basically what that is, that's what it means, then you're in a rock and a hard place. So then you see like these kind of showy, like, look, we're hip, we're woke, we got Solange on stage, we're part of the hip hop 50, you know, <laughs> like all these things that happen. We got Sir Mix a lot with the Seattle Symphony. Fellows! Fellows! All, I'm, uh, you know, all of those things, I'm glad those things happen, but like, where's the proof that that's going to continue? Where's the proof that you're going to continue to represent blackness on the classical stage? There, there is no reason for, uh, for people to turn up if they get shown something that they like and then they never get to see that thing again. Do you feel like? Classical music is yours. Do you feel like mm. you belong in it? I don't know. Because I, I, you know, I have people, there's some people's whose music I really like that are considered classical musicians. I like my music, which is good because I keep writing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know that classical music belongs to me or I belong to it. I'm a musician. The culture, I'm, I'm trying to contribute to the musical culture. So like, I belong to American music and American music belongs to me, really. Um, during the pandemic, I really had a chance to do some deep investigation in what it was I was writing and why I was feeling disaffected from it. So for me, a key to expressing my blackness through my music is the use of improvisation.
another thing that I, I started doing that I still want to do um, more of is I started incorporating sounds from like my grandmother's church, um, specifically um, hymn lining. There's this practice where like, you know, someone in the congregation will start singing a line and then the whole congregation will just start responding. Right. Yeah. Like a call. And yeah. Response. It's a call and response. Mm -hmm. But it's a very particular thing where it's like it can happen anytime in a service. Um, and people do not agree on what the melody is when they respond. So it's, it's but it's the most powerful, most one of the most beautiful sounds you'll ever hear, because it's just all these people don't care if they can or can't sing those like little those things of ego just don't matter They're It's they're called upon to sing and respond to this person. And I just love the story that I have in my head of how that could have come to be, you know, thinking of, you know, church services on plantations where the congregants are often new to the area because they've just been bought and they're brought in and maybe they were brought in from somewhere else. And they've heard that call before, but they back where they were, the response was different. And so they're bringing their response from their original place there. And like just having that be something that I don't know. I've, I've always loved that, that story. I, I'm, I haven't checked if that's true. <laughs> I have to say. For the record, I checked. And it turns out Matthew isn't far off. The origins of hymn lining can be traced to the English church in the 17th and 18th century. And hymn lining, this call and response singing, was done to allow the congregants, who were illiterate, to participate in the worship experience. After the first slaves arrived on the American shores in 1619, the custom of hymn lining continued with fervor among those enslaved because this was a way to learn English. my work uh, I'm, I'm doing is centered on breath um, and actually that is also how I'm expressing my blackness now um, I I tell the in my music I tell the players you're only when you're breathing in when you inhale you're gonna you're silent and you're listening and when you exhale you sing you move you you express So that becomes the whole structure. The repeated breathing becomes the whole structure of the piece. And you only count the piece in breaths and not beats, not minutes, not chords, not anything. It's just breaths. This piece is 100 breaths long. This piece is 27 breaths long. It's blackness to me because it's like a rebellion in a way because I'm I'm told by society, you've been told by society doubly because you're also a woman, that my breath doesn't matter as much as those in power, right? I've had family that lives in places that has asbestos in the wall, has faulty mo carbon monoxide, you know, uh, monitors. Our breath doesn't matter as much, right? So 
I feel like it's very audacious for me to write a piece to dare say, this is a piece about breathing. You're going to breathe with me. It's also really connected to one of the cries of um, since Eric Garner, I can't breathe. Like, what is breath? It's the proof of existence. If you stop breathing, you know, you'll be in agony, <laughs> right? I have as much right to the air that we're all breathing as anybody else. Adia Golston, Matthew Evan Taylor, and Daniel Bernard Romain. If you've been following along with our first season of Homegoings, then you know that each of our episodes ends with a deep listen. Sometimes it's music, sometimes it's spoken word, but it's always profound. Today we have something just as special. DBR mentioned in our interview that he wrote the score for a documentary film entitled Homegoings. I know, right? It was serendipity to me, too. DBR graciously offered us a piece of that music to share with you. As mentioned earlier, we've scored this episode with the voices of 8th grade students from Tuttle Middle School in South Burlington, Vermont. Shout out to Christine St. Clair and the principal of the school for letting us come and speak with the students. We paired DBR's music and students' voices together, so sit back, take a breath, and let the listen in. This is Home by Daniel Bernard Romain and candid thoughts about music from the students of Tuttle Middle School. There's always gonna be like, there's like a man and he makes like good music and like whatever. If there's a woman that makes good music, it's always gonna be like, oh, it's good for a woman. It's not gonna be like seen as just music. Like he's almost as good as this person, but not quite because he's black. I don't necessarily know if it's what I wanna do, but like I write songs. Basically, just like I just take one small inconvenience in my life and I exaggerate it so much. <laughs> yeah. I like imagine myself like on a giant stage with like a big orchestra playing with them. Like, I just want to play like a giant string instrument, like a double bass. And I want to be like on the stage, I want everyone to see me. And I. I just like playing music with a bunch of people because I feel like you all have like this connection and love to music and you're all like in the same group even though you might look different or speak a different language. Music, I feel like it's a universal language. I feel like um, like a band or something like that, it's like a really good community. Yeah, because like you do something like in common with everyone and um, it's like a good place to just kind of like, like be like supported and like you get to do like what like you love. I hope that like everywhere I go, I can find at least one person, like varying of age, race, uh, gender, or like anything, playing music. I think like music has been it, being getting more. Different. 
diverse ever since like rap and ska and reggae started getting popular and I think it's gonna keep getting more diverse. I think people shouldn't just like listen to whatever's like popular and like everyone else is listening to. I think people should just like listen to what they relate with or like find interesting. Like people relate through music and you can like connect through music. So like find a group of people that you can like connect through music with. Let a lot more people just not be as stereotypical to classical music and just have a lot more of an open mind. Like also help inspire other people. I but like I think I'll be like more fond of the music if like more people got into it, like um like an Indian got into it or like a black person started like becoming famous into it, then I'll be like recognizing classical more if they be like because you don't always see that now. And you're a white man and you're looking at photos around of white men who made music, it's gonna be easier for you. But if you're like a girl or someone of color and you look up on the wall and you see someone that like resembles you, it'll like inspire you more to, that you can do it because other people did it. Thank you so much for listening to Homegoings, a righteous space for art and race. It's been a pleasure to guest host and to share this time with you. Special thanks to educator Christine St. Clair, the principal of Toto Middle School, and all of the students who participated. Special thanks to Corey Doxer, our data journalist here at Vermont Public. Also thanks to Elodie Reed, who is the graphic artist behind all of our Homegoings artist portraits. Check them all out at homegoings.co. While you're there, you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter and give us a follow on Instagram at wearehomegoings. This episode was mixed, scored, and reported by Adia Ghostin and James Stewart. Myra Flynn composed the theme music. Other music by Daniel Bernard Romain, Matthew Evan Taylor, Maurice Rebel, Chevalier de St. George, and Blue Dot Sessions. Brittany Patterson and Myra Flynn edited this episode. Thank you both. If you like what you've heard, help us out and spread the word. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a stranger. Myra will be back with you in two weeks for another episode of Homegoings. I'm Adia Ghostin. And I'm James Stewart. As always, you, you are welcome, welcome here. here. You're changing the culture. And it doesn't matter if two people listen or 20,000, right? And if enough of us do these things, and, and by the way, there are plenty of us who are doing these things every day. That's why things are better than they were 100 years ago. And that's how things are going to get better 100 years from now. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.